Welcome to BIO, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. BIO is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm BIO member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This week, we interview Alejandro Madrid, an award-winning Cornell University musicologist. Professor Madrid specializes in examining Latin American and Latinx music and culture, and he's written more than a half dozen books. His latest, Tanya Leone's Stride, A Polyrhythmic Life, was published by the University of Illinois Press in December 2021. Tanya Leon, now in her late 70s, is an acclaimed Cuban-American musician who won a Pulitzer Prize last year for her composition, Stride, an orchestral celebration of the 19th Amendment, the amendment that granted women the right to vote. In my online interview with Alejandro Madrid on February 17th of this year, he talked about Tanya Leone's significance. Tanya Leone is a, a, a Cuban-American composer who immigrated to the United States in the late 1960s. She is being a, a very important force in the music scene of New York, I would say it's in the late 1960s, actually. She was the uh, music director of uh, Dance Theater of Harlem. She was one of the co-founders of the community uh, concert series of the Brooklyn Philharmonic. She uh, was a uh, composer in residence with the New York Philharmonic. Um, the music has been played uh, in the United States, in Latin America, in Europe. And uh, she's, uh, besides being an amazing composer and a great conductor, she's been an advocate of uh, people of color and people who have been marginalized in the music scene in general, and a champion of, of their music commissioning music, programming music of African-American composers, Latino composers, uh, Asian-American composers. And she started doing that at a time when diversity was not uh, a word that you would hear around. (laughs) Right. She was uh, really ahead of her time in a lot of ways in this regard. So why did you decide to write this biography? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Especially if you sort of look at the trajectory of my work, uh, the book that I wrote right before this one was something that I would actually conceptualize, I did conceptualize as a anti-biography. So it was about a Mexican composer, but it was not only about him, um, a Mexican composer who was active from the beginning of the 20th century up until the 1960s, but who in the 1920s became sort of a radical um, music uh, uh, microtonalist. And he really advocated for uh, a revolution of music that attempted to change the music system. And it was a utopian sort of view. But when I was writing about him, I was not interested in sort of celebrating this unknown composer and sort of inserting him in the canon of Western art music, because I had been very critical about the very notion of the canon of of Western art music and and what kind of values are privileged in that canon. To me, it felt like inserting this this composer and sort of in order to reproduce these values didn't really make a lot of sense. So I tried to approach the composer and his work and his followers and, and, and I created sort of a complex. Uh, the book ended up being much more than just a biography of this composer. And uh, also the, the motivation of writing about him was not really a celebration. In, in fact, uh, I'm very harsh 
with his some of his ideas and some of the ways in which he would actually portray himself in writing when he was alive uh, and the exaggerations and uh, the self-celebration and things like that that I was not really interested in. So if you go from that anti-biography to this book, which is a celebration of Tanya Leon and her work, how did you make that transition? What drew you to her? So Tanya Leon approached me. Uh, I knew Tanya. I had written about some of her works in previous books. And she approached me and she asked if I was interested in writing the biography. And I it was I was very hesitant for just the fact that I had written that anti-biography before. And I was like, do I want to write something that's just a celebration? Uh, and clearly she was thinking about her legacy you know, when she approached me. So I hesitated because also I, I thought, well, he's a great you know, figure in the American music scene who has not received a fair treatment, I think, in, in how she's been uh, written about in textbooks and other uh, books. Uh, and she's generated also a lot of controversy uh, because of her position regarding race and, uh, and uh, identity politics that I think in many cases has been unfair. Before you go on, so what is the controversy? Uh, well, um, she has never liked to be defined as an African-American composer or a woman composer. And not because she doesn't believe that, or she knows that she's African-American or that, that, that she's a black composer, but she doesn't want that to be the defining factor on how she's seen. She says, I am this body, but I'm more than this body. This is just the vehicle for me to move in the world. No? I don't want to be defined by being a woman or being a, a black person. Uh, and you know, it's interesting too, because early in her career, when she came to the United States, she was definitely associated with African-American ensembles and groups. I would say that you're right, actually. That's how she uh, became a composer, actually, working with, with Arthur Mitchell. Arthur Mitchell was the founder of, of Dan Feder Harlem, you know, a legendary uh, ballet dancer uh, who actually was one of the first ones who to be uh, in a choreography with a white woman. So a black man and a, and a white woman in 1960s, it wasn't seen very nicely. So, but anyway, so that's sort of the environment and the, and the cultural atmosphere that nurtured her. Uh, and this is how she became a composer. That's, this is how she became a conductor. And it's, it was really part of this African-American culture. Uh, and she knows that, she, she understands that, you know, when we speak, she always refers to this world. Uh, and through my conversations with her, I understood that yet she feels that it, she is part of this world. But at the same time, she doesn't want to be a pigeonhole, you know. And um, for those who are more interested in sort of advancing questions of, of identity politics, this has been somehow uh, problematic, you know. And um, this is sort of the one of the things that I thought had been unfair about how she has been treated like not really giving a chance to really explain what did she mean when, when she said those things. Um, the other thing is that being a, a woman composer in the music scene of New York 1970s was also basically breaking barriers, no? Mm -hmm. uh, and then being black was even more a statement, no? So uh, all of that to me was already important uh, to celebrate and to say there's this woman who has been doing this for decades and she's a, she's a very strong presence in, in this world that should be uh, known better. So I thought, okay, I do want to write about her, but I, I would like to sort of negotiate with her how to uh, be able to make justice to her legacy, but also being in a way 
sort of honest of what the kind of critical uh, writing that I had done regarding biographies before. That was sort of the tension for me. So how did you deal with navigating that dichotomy of what you wanted to to do in terms of, of telling her story and what she wanted in terms of having her story told? Yeah, so I, I think that one of the important things was that we respected each other. She's such an, a, a great presence uh, in American cultural world that to me there's nothing but really admiration. And the more I get to know her, the more I get to admire her work and you know the way she's being a, a, a great advocate of young composers and uh, uh, people of color. So uh, to me, there was only admiration and respect. And, uh, and, and I got from her that also sort of the same treatment in terms of the respect for my vision. Uh, she wanted a sort of comprehensive biography. And from the beginning, I told her, this is not what I want to do. Uh, I would rather do something that's, uh, uh, that gives a very good sort of first impression of what your work has been, what is the importance of your work, and open avenues for other people to actually come and do more work about you. Um, so we talked about that and, and eventually, yeah, we came to terms with that idea. This is clearly not a chronologically structured biography. In fact, I was really intrigued by something that came up, I think, in chapter one, where you said she came to the U.S. from Cuba with very little money, no family either with her or here in the United States. And they confiscated her passport, so then she didn't have any official papers. And she couldn't speak English. So, you know, I'm like, wow, how do you navigate, you know, a whole new environment with those kind of parameters? And then you jump to something else. But it's not until later on in another chapter that you find out who she lived with and all that. So how did you decide how you were going to deal with the structure of the biography? Well, that, that's actually a good example of how we negotiated things. Because my original idea was to take one particular moment of her career which was when she was invited to go to Cuba and to conduct the National Symphony Orchestra in Cuba uh, in 2017, I believe, uh, 16 or 17, I don't remember. So I wanted to use that as a vignette to open all of the chapters, but looked at it from different perspectives. I wanted to, uh, to see that moment uh, through her eyes uh, and then speak about her life in Cuba as an immigrant who is now coming back to Cuba, no? uh, through the eyes of the audience, uh, through the eyes of the reviewers, the press in Cuba, through the eyes of the press in the United States. So all, all, it was going to be the same moment looked at from different uh, points of view. And, uh, uh, and each point of view was going to be a, a way of highlighting a particular look at her life, either through the notion of diaspora or through the notion of home, missing home, or through the notion of developing a, a, an artistic voice. So all of the different topics that I use in the, in the chapter which I ended up using. But what she was very adamant about not doing was to use that particular vignette because she thought that it was giving Cuba sort of um, a dominant place in her biography, especially the Cuban regime because the Cuban regime basically invited her back to Cuba. And she said, well, it was an important moment, but I don't want it to be the defining moment. Uh, and to me, I was so sort of married with the idea because I thought it was so poetic not to speak about all these different things by, by going back to the same moment. Um, but in the end, I understood, okay, you know, she's right. I think I'm, I'm giving too much weight to Cuba and to the Cuban government, and it shouldn't be. You know, it's, uh, it, it's actually, in, in a way, I understood that it, I was doing violence to her if I did that. 
So I restructured in terms of I got rid of the vignette. I maintained the topic and the idea of speaking about her life through looking at different lenses. Uh, so that remained. But at the same time, sort of um, that original structure was changed because of my dialogues with her. Okay. And then how much access did you have to Miss Leon? I had complete access. I don't remember how many hours of interviews. Uh, she was very welcoming. I went to her house in, in Nyack, New York, and she opened her archive to me. I was able to mm. look at everything I wanted, scores, um, you know, letters, uh, newspapers. Her whole collection was open to me. And she gave me access to uh, her family and relatives. So I, I was able to go to Cuba and interview family there, uh, friends. So she was very, very open. That's wonderful. But you did mention, I think it was in the intro, that some family members or friends were a little reluctant to talk uh, because they feared reprisal or possible reprisal from the Cuban government. How did you deal with that? Actually, most of the relatives were quite open about speaking and they spoke and they said whatever they had to say about Cuba and their feelings about the regime. Uh, her friends in Cuba did the same. And I wrote drafts, uh, including their voices. And at some point, I started thinking, hmm, this might get someone in trouble, no? Uh, and uh, when she read the early drafts, she agreed. And we we're like, well, maybe there's another way to say this story without actually jeopardizing this person. So it was sort of like that, no? And it was more actually my conversations with her uh, than the actual voices of the people that I spoke uh, from Cuba. They were very open, actually. Okay. And then what about her more personal, intimate life? Um, you write that she was married twice. And then when she came to the state, she had a, a relationship that, you know, lasted for 30 years. But there's not a lot of details about that particular relationship. Why was that? And did she ask you not to really delve into that? Yeah. So uh, she was married in Cuba and then she got divorced in the early 1970s, and then she got married again in the United States. At that second marriage in the United States, she didn't even want me to mention the name of the guy. Uh, and then she told me the story, you know, she told me the reasons why, and I thought, okay, yeah, she doesn't want that person in her life and in her book, so I'm fine with that. I just, in a footnote, I mentioned a source where actually someone can go and find the name of the, of the guy, is, but she didn't want the name there. And I respected that. Uh, and it didn't really change much of the story anyway. So uh, the one that to me was more problematic was her relationship of many years, almost 30 years with a, a, a female viola player. who She actually introduced me and I spoke to her. You know, they lived together when, when I was interviewing her. And, but they broke about two or three years ago. So in the middle of the process of writing the biography, I had already written that chapter about Cuba in which she, she was featured very prominently. And then she told me that she didn't feel that it was all right to, to speak so much about her. So I didn't cut her. She, her voice is still there and her, her opinions are still there. But most of the details of the romantic life together, I actually ended up editing out of the book. And again, I felt that it didn't really take much out of the story that I was trying to say and that it respected her. Um, but that's one of the issues of dealing with a, a person who's alive and you're writing a biography because, um, yeah, I mean, there's intimate details they may not be willing to make public, no? Right. And then you need to come to terms with the fact that I think you should respect that, no? Mm -hmm. Okay. You um, titled the book 
Stride. And obviously last year, Stride, the, the orchestral composition, won a Pulitzer. So someone reading the book or looking at the book would say, oh, this is why <laughs> Stride is in the title. But is that the case? No, actually it's not. <laughs> I, and it's interesting because, well, the epilogue in which I go back to Stride, uh, it, that was written actually right after the, the premiere of the piece, but before she received the Pulitzer. And in fact, the only uh, sort of uh, mention to the Pulitzer is a footnote that I was able to introduce at the proof stage of the book. I was already revising proofs when she got the Pulitzer. The reason why you tried is because I knew that she had written, and she was actually working on that piece when I was writing the book and, and, and doing sort of the, the research process of the book. So she was already working on that, and she told me the reason why she was doing it was because of the, the story with the amendment, right, of uh, the voting rights for women, uh, but also the story of her grandmother and her mother, which she said, you know, they had this very uh, determined way of walking through life, and they passed that on to me. Uh, and to me, when I read the story and when I read sort of the trajectory of the different chapters, it's really all about her really moving forward, moving forward. And I thought, well, this metaphor of stride is perfect to write about someone whose life has been that way and who's been influenced by these very strong and, and, and powerful women. In the end, she, she celebrates in that composition. Okay. Um, how would you describe the actual composition stride? So in terms of style, I think it's very um, it's a very good example of her mature style of, of composition. It's uh, very tonal, but also always making references to elements of African-American culture, which are always very present throughout her composition, sometimes hidden, but they're always there, and uh, elements of Cuban culture. And that particular piece is in a way somehow there's a story behind that is not told in a very direct way, but it's sort of referred to obliquely by how the music sort of unfolds. And the fact that you have these African drums at the end of the piece, when you have the big sort of celebration with the bells, the tubular bells, and, and sort of the big fanfare of, okay, we finally achieved this moment in which well, women got the right to vote. But then she has those drums, no, which, and, and it's basically telling you, yeah, but that's not the whole story, no? Mm. African-American women didn't get that right until much later, no? And, and that's there. If you listen carefully, you say, oh, that's what she means with those drums, no? And then, you know, writing about music is probably like writing about the visual arts. How do you describe an experience that for music is oral? So how did you go about dealing with that aspect of her work? Because clearly she's a musician, she's a writer, she's a conductor. All those things we want to see and hear, and yet you have to get the essence of that on the printed page. How do you do that? It is very difficult. And that was also another point of negotiation with her. She uh, had a very sort of very clear idea of how she wanted me to write about her music, but that didn't coincide with how I wanted to write about her music. Uh, I thought that if I write from my perspective only, a lot of what the music is about is going to be lost because I'm going to just think about what I'm, I was trained to listen to as a musicologist. So I thought, okay, one way to go about it would be to take my listening as a point of departure. I have the privilege that she's alive and I can actually talk to her about her composition. So I said, okay, I should incorporate her voice. Clearly, mm -hmm. the things that I hear are not necessarily the things that, that she put there. 
in terms of like she what she was thinking should be emphasized or what was important in the music because in the end you know the way we listen to music is very personal right. um, you make music uh, according to your own circumstances and your own histories and stories so i decided okay why don't we combine my voice her voice with some other voices so i um, asked a latin american composer who was getting his phd at the time at cornell uh, so I had a lot of conversations with him because he happened to also be very interested in her music. And his perspective as a composer was completely different from mine and what he was able to listen to. But here I think, well, maybe we can sort of create this dialogue, sort of a counterpoint between Tanya Leon, me as the musicologist writing this thing, this colleague as a, as a composer who listens to different things uh, and is trained to listen to different things and the press and the audiences and you know what people say about how the music has been presented in newspapers uh, and then a little bit of music analysis not for those who are interested in sort of the more technical things so uh, that chapter about her music was in a way an experiment trying to write this sort of more democratic listening uh, experience try to put it in paper and i have to say that at the beginning she was not very thrilled with the idea <laughs> uh, she thought that it was very repetitive and I, I wanted it to be repetitive because I wanted the reader to find what are the common traces in all of these different kinds of music that she's written over 50 years. Um, music that is very different in terms of style, in terms of technique, but once you actually dive into the scores, you find motifs and you find ideas that are repeated and that come back. And to me, those are sort of the backbone of her musical output that to me was very important to identify. To her it was like, okay, yeah, I, I do that there, I do that there, but so what, you know? But to me it was very interesting as someone trained in listening to the kind of thing that I'm trained to listen to. So um, in the end, I think she was happy with it, with the final result, which actually also changed a little bit because of the what the external reviewers of the book told me. They gave me very good feedback about that particular chapter. So I think it worked well. And that chapter was the voice chapter, right? Exactly. Looking at her voice in music. Now, clearly, the other chapters take you through various stages of her life and her experiences and all. But when you get to the voice chapter and you're talking about her musical voice, then you include examples of scores and music notation. So for someone who is not a musician, who doesn't read music, how do you think that works for them? Because I can read music, you read music, but if you don't, would you get lost in that particular chapter? So I try to organize it so that you could actually skip those musical uh, examples mm -hmm. uh, because you have the sections in which she is actually describing her process. No, You have the sections in which uh, I am somehow summarizing what I believe sort of the main idea that I had with this other composer. And then you have the sections in which uh, I sort of summarize what other people have written about these particular pieces. So you can actually go through the different sections of the book, skipping the, the actual music analysis. Uh, and in the end, I think the music analysis is there simply to illustrate some points. Uh, for those who have music background, they may be able to get something more out of the book, uh, of that particular chapter, I'm sorry. But for those who don't, I think they could still get sort of the main ideas without actually needing to go to the piano or anything like that, no? Okay. Um, what's also wonderful is that there is just a wealth of illustrations, photographs, of course, the musical notations. But the photographs are wonderful. So how difficult or easy was it 
getting those photographs? Uh, so finding them at first was kind of difficult. Not the one that she actually gave me. Like I told you, she gave me access to all of her archive and many pictures were there, but they were not organized. So I had to go through everything and then sort of select. But that was easy because it was already there, no? The pictures of her family and the pictures that were taken by um, the photographer actually left to her. So she had the copyright. There was no problem. We could use them. Then there were other pictures that I was able to locate through the American Composers Orchestra and their archive and also from uh, the Theater of Harlem. What advice would you offer to fellow writers who may be writing about or thinking about writing about a living person? Well, I think, you know, the bottom of it all is really a matter of respect, no? And trust, I'd say. I don't know if I would write a, a biography of someone that I don't know personally who's still alive. In my particular case, I think I was lucky to find someone who I mentioned before I already knew and uh, uh, she liked my work. So there was a sort of a mutual respect and that was sort of the basis of everything. Once you have the trust of the person, I think you can get away with saying, you know, a couple of things that may be negative. The, the last chapter, for example, which I deal with her legacy and I go into these um, controversies, no, that to her are very painful. And just the fact that she doesn't want those terms to be used to describe her, right? But the fact that she's black is very important in her life. There's no way that I can write about her without actually writing about that. So uh, to me, writing that chapter at the end was a way of addressing all these issues that I was interested in and that he was very hesitant about. And in the end, I have to say that the, the final result, she was actually quite happy with it because I think that I was able to present the facts and the, uh, and the opinions in a way that, that made understandable why it is that she took those stances. Even though a lot of people are very critical about that, no? So you cannot speak about one without speaking about the other one and then you balance the, balance the issues, no? That was award-winning musicologist and Cornell University professor Alejandro Madrid. I spoke with him on February 17th of this year about his latest book, Tanya Leone's Stride, A Polyrhythmic Life published by the University of Illinois Press in December 2021. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a wonderful day.